Today we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, an aspect of God's character that I think is important for all of us to understand, grasp, to get. And some of you have probably uh, seen this particular play, and you might have seen it in movies or a play rendition, but I love the Christmas Carol. How many, how many come on, you love the Christmas Carol, right? Some, how many of you hate the Christmas Carol? No, I'm just I'm, Be nice. We're in church. Okay. But I love this story, and it has a lot of application for us. But I don't know if you've ever heard the literary translation of this story. But it says, Charles Dickens himself says, Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, quite articulate, right? Squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. A frosty rime was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own temperature always about him. And then, as the story unfolds, there is a supernatural visitation, right, that takes place. And out of that visitation, there is a change of heart in old old Ebenezer Scrooge. The time, the, the time that all of this happens, there is kind of a, almost a scariness to it, right? But it's not about, the change didn't happen because he, he was loved into that change. The change happened because he was scared into a changed life. And we're going to look at a character in the Bible that wasn't he was transformed. He was changed in a powerful way, but it wasn't out of fear. It was out of the impact of love and what love did to his heart. And before we dig into that particular passage and we look at it a little bit more uh, deeper, I want to I want to look at you know there's there's a lot of ways that we value who we are. And American society is puts a lot of pressure on us to judge our value based on certain situations. And the first one that we have here is appearance. How many know that's quite a value of our American society, right? The way we look, uh, the way we dress, our makeup, our appearances. It's all over billboards. It's all over the television. We're pressured into being put into that mold. How do I look today? Am I dressed chart? The problem with appearance is that it doesn't last, right? No matter how smart you started in your prime, you inevitably go downhill. I just want you to know, young people, it's not going to always be like this. It's going to be worse. No. <laughs> How many believe that probably you're a living example of this right now? No, there's not too many old people in here. How many are sitting next to somebody that are a living example of this? No. <laughs> Approval is another value of American society. How well am I liked? What are people saying about me? Are they, do they like me? And we try to somehow conform to what people think. The problem with that is it is exhausting, right, to fit into other people's molds. <laughs> we can't be ourselves. We have to be what other people are expecting us to be. And we are quickly devastated when we try to somehow squeeze into that value because it's so exhausting and every time you're criticized, it wipes you out. 
Huh? It wears you out. It is incredibly challenging. The third value, achievement. Achievement. I'd say probably if I was honest, this is probably the one that probably kills me the most or gets to me. You know, I don't, appearance, I'm, I'm not much to appear anyhow. Uh, but <laughs> it's a lie. <laughs> is that my daughter? Oh, thank you, blessing. Oh, <laughs> come on now. Now that's meaningful, I, I have to admit. But I think that probably, you know, if I, if I get a lot of things done, I'm good, man. I mean, if I, if I can check off my to-do list and I... If I can't get to those things that I really feel like is, is necessary, man, I am like, at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, my God, how was your day? Ugh, not good. The problem with all of those superficial values like that is that when we base our things, our worth based on what we do, man, it causes all kinds of stress, right? And workaholism and feeling like, oh, my gosh, I got I to gotta work and I got to even get up in the night and... Of course, some of you do that because you've been procrastinating, but with your schoolwork, right? But there's something about having to always be under that kind of value. And then the next one is affluence, you know, is power. You know, when our net worth equals our self-worth, we are in trouble. And that's really kind of the American way, right? Graduate, get a job, make money, lots of money, eventually make lots of money. Whatever it is, is that somehow that is what makes you valuable, what you're, you're, you're worthy, right? If you have a lot of things. The next thing is artistry. And I kind of probably, it depends on kind of what field you're in, whether you live in Nashville or wherever, <laughs> Las Vegas, but I don't know. But we, this last week, it was awesome. Uh, a student that comes to second place, Nick Rasmussen, he had a, an exhibit yeah, this week. It was, it was awesome. And I asked him if I could show this picture, and so he sent this picture of one of his photographs. Look at that. I mean, think about it. How did she, how did he do that? How did she do that? Right? Lean into it, man. Uh, the, the title of all these photographs was Desolate. And I, I love this picture. And what's really powerful about the artistry of this is that he took three photographs, and he merged them together in order to get her leaning forward. And they're all just like beautifully put together, right? That you could, you'd never, it's so seamless. You'd never, I mean, I, I drool at his ability to do something like this, right? Oh my gosh, this is like crazy go nuts. I mean, how do you... His, all those photographs. So he's got an exhibit all this week. So this is just a little uh, commercial plug. You know, to go to Larson Hall, if you're on campus, or even if you're not on campus and you just want to go and see something pretty awesome and be inspired, Larson Hall, downstairs, through the stairwell, down to the left, it's all good. <laughs> I think sometimes, though, the people that are artistic, they're, not, they're, they're kind of saying, you know, I don't base my worth on all these superficial values, but on my artistic contribution to society but it's so elusive, right? If somehow you're valued just based on your artistry, on your ability to lead worship, on your ability to sing, or whatever it might be. 
And I think that there's nothing bad about those items, right? Uh, affluence isn't necessarily in and of itself bad, but it can be if you're being ruled by it, if you're being dominated by it, if it's something that has a hold of you. When you're looking at people that, you know, your achievement and what you get done and all those kind of things, man, it can be a problem. If you build your life on all of those things, man, life can be a crazy roller coaster ride. The highs and lows, the ups and the downs, ups and downs. And I'm, I'm going to recommend a solution to all of that in this passage that we're going to look at today. And someone that's similar to Ebenezer Scrooge, and that is Zacchaeus. So we're going to look at Luke 19, verse 1, and start here. And it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, I, I want to show you a picture of Jericho. This is a gondola that's going up into the Mount of Temptation, the mount that, that some people feel that that was where Jesus was tempted by uh, the devil. And I've been in Jericho. It's a, it's a beautiful city, a city of 12,000 Historical people in history, uh, history buffs believe that this might be the oldest inhabited city in all the world. Uh, some would say Damascus, but a majority say that this is a, a close second, if not a first, and they still has 12,000 people that inhabit this incredibly old and ancient city. But the thing about it, in Jesus' day, it was... It was an economical phenomena, and dates, and, and, and the, what they grew there was something that made it an incredibly wealthy city, and a city that many rich people wanted to come. People would have, it was a resort city, a resort city for the very wealthy, for the very rich. And in fact, King Herod had a very lavish winter palace in Jericho, and this is a, a little image of some of the ar uh, architecture. What do you call it? Archaeological findings. And this is kind of like a, a bathing area. People could go there and sit and sip on their, you know, their different wines. And their... It was all about wealthy. Wealthy people lived in Jericho. They had their homes in Jericho, like the man that we're about to meet. Verses 2 and 3. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, that really grabs my heart right there. He was short. Yes. Of course, my, I, I am short in stature in some ways, but, but my last name's short, so it's a, like, a, like a double whammy. But he could not see over the crowd. Now, you know, Mark Batterson, he's a pastor in uh, National Community Church in Washington, D.C. <laughs> he makes this comment. He says, you know, I wish God could just wipe away all my knowledge of the Bible. Because when I read the Bible and I read David and Goliath and I, I read the stories of um, Lazarus and those stories, I already know the end from the beginning. And I don't look at it with fresh wonder. 
I don't look at it with new eyes, right? You ever get in that habit, right? You just, okay, you read your Bible, you come, you hear a message, right? Okay, I've heard the story, Lazarus, right? Or whatever, Zacchaeus. And we're not coming with expectancy. You know, I, I, I pray this, and I say, God, I, I don't want to lose my wonder of your word. I don't want to lose that, that excitement over what I might hear, what you might say to me, because I want to be able to catch it. God, you may be say, wanting to say something to me in this message that I don't want to miss it. And so I just say, man, I want to be alert. It's like even in my own devotions, you know, I've got, I've got different Bibles and I've written in all of them. And if I take one, I'll, you know, I'll, you know, I can see, oh, I, okay, this is what I read here and this is what seemed to stick out to me. And, and this year, man, I just, I said, you know, I'm, I'm putting all that away. I'm putting, I'm getting a fresh Bible out and I am just wanting to marvel again. I want to marvel at what God's word says. And so I just pray that your heart would just really be open to this passage and this message today. Father, I, I ask you, Lord, to speak to us with clarity. There, there are points in this message that are significantly important to someone in this room. And so, Lord, we, we put our antennas up. We ask you, Lord, to show us something fresh, new. What do you want to say to me, Father? And Lord, we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So he was the chief tax collector. So I looked up what were the most despised jobs in ancient Judea. <laughs> and so here is the list. Are you ready? Drum roll. Okay. Thank you. Number five, physicians and butchers. <laughs> I don't know whether they were kind of similar <laughs> or, or, you know, I mean, you know what's crazy is look, Luke. Sorry, look. Look, Luke. Luke. He was a physician. He's the one writing this. <laughs> and I'm thinking, was he really that despised? Or, you know, poor Luke. But then number four, dung collector. Oh, dung collector. The camels and the horses and the Yeah, number three, money lender. Mm-hmm. Stiff necked money lenders. Number two, pigeon trainer. Oh, my gosh. The cheapest way to gamble was with pigeons. So there was a lot of pigeon races, man. <laughs> He's, they probably went with the dung collector. I don't know. The pigeon, the, I don't know how the dung collectors kind of worked with the pigeon poo. But this was, a, pigeon racers were so corrupt. They would throw races, they were, they, bribery, they, they were so hated. And the way they treated the pigeons, I mean, it was just like, not good, right? <laughs> then the number one of all in ancient Judea was what? The tax collector, the worst of the worst. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst. The Roman government would hire local collaborators in whatever province they were trying to garner money, and they would have them take over the collection of taxes. And they didn't have to be reputable people, just as long as they got the job done. 
And they got paid, these tax collectors got paid by retail margin to wholesale. So wholesale is just exactly what, what the Roman government wanted, which could have been exorbitant in and of itself. But then the tax collectors could just add on to that whatever they wanted. They charged exorbitant rates, and they had the power of the Roman soldiers, the government behind them, that would go for the collections. And if they didn't get their money, they could confiscate your house, they could deport you, they could throw you into prison. They were bad people. They were seen as thieves. They were seen as people that were traitors to their own people. Why? Because they were working for the Roman government, right? They were doing the Roman government's bad business. They were not looked upon with much love. Now, I want you to look at verse 2 and 3. It says here, back to 2 and 3, it says that he was a chief tax collector, not just any tax collector. He was a chief tax collector, and there was, he was, this is the only tax collector that's ever identified in the New Testament as a chief tax collector. That means that he was at the pyramid of the scam. He was the epitome of what was bought, what was, bought, what was bad, and what people hated. He was an organizer of those that were loathed. He was the organizer of a loathed, corrupt system. Luke 2a, it says, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. So, you know, this had to have been, you think about the way he was hated, and he was loathed. And the people knew that his name meant righteous one, innocent one pure one? Are you kidding me? There was probably an incredible mockery of even of his name, such a disdain that, that he does, there is no way that he even epitomizes his name. There was, there was hatred toward that name, that when that name was spoken, it was out of resentment. It was out of anger. It was never out of any kind of recognition of value, definitely not any kind of recognition of what the name actually signified, and that was that of innocence, of purity, of righteousness. And then it says in three, the latter part of verse 3, it says, because he was a short man, kind of like me, Joshua. You know, he says that because he's not short. You know, he can get, anyhow. How did I get kids that were like six foot eight? I mean, oh my gosh, these monsters, my, my oldest boy, and my, even blessing is like my size now. I'm like, God, why did you do this to me? Oh, anyhow, I digress. Of course, it kind of fillets was short, but he was short. He could not see over the crowd. The Greek word here is helikia mikros. What do you think? We get micros. What English word do we get micros from? Micro. English word micro. He was a micro man. A micro man. Now, listen to this. Interesting. Greek literature of the day. This word typically 
typically was meant for people that were genetically small people, not just short. But the reason that because he was short, he was micro, he was genetically small. He was what we would say a little person. But there was a lot of prejudice about people that were physically challenged in Jesus' culture in his day. A lot of prejudice toward people that were like this. Can you imagine the names he was called as a child? In an atmosphere in which, in the pagan society of the day, he was considered cursed by the gods because of the way he was. Mocked by those in the institution, Mocked by those that were his friends, that he grew up with, the children. Cursed by the gods, marginalized even in the Roman province of Judea. Now this is, this is total conjecture. But I wonder if he became a tax collector for the reasons of getting revenge. A resentment that was in him. Saying, man, I'll get, I'll get even these people, the way they've treated me, the way they've acted toward me. He had to have started as a, an initial tax collector and worked his way up. He had to have been incredibly violent, incredibly immoral in the way that he treated people to get to a place of being a chief of all of these others. You think back about the ways that we seek approval. Parents, probably ridiculed. Approval, everybody hates the man. Even for the way that he looks. Parents, approval, achievement. The way he was achieving was pretty evil. Artistry, I don't know how much artistry he had. The only thing he could grab a hold of was affluence. Wealthy, but apparently incredibly unhappy, Zacchaeus was. Verse 4, we see that he hears about Jesus. He, he, he doesn't know a lot about Jesus, but he's heard about Jesus. And so he runs on ahead and he climbs a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, it doesn't say sycamore tree. It doesn't say fig tree. It says a sycamore fig tree, and it's a pretty unique tree. And I, I have a photo here of a sycamore fig tree, big, long, drawn-out branches that hang over a road. You can almost visualize Zacchaeus, right, up there, kind of sitting up on one of those big limbs, waiting for Jesus and this caravan of people to kind of be passing through. And he's on this branch, and he's on this tree. And it says in verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Now just hold that verse there for just a minute. He said to him, Zacchaeus. You think about this. His name, when it was mentioned there was probably an incredible amount of hatred that was spoken when that name was said. That's all he ever probably got 
But all of a sudden, Jesus is passing by, and he says, Zacchaeus, in a way that was so powerfully moving, so caring, so compassionate, so merciful. Can you think about this in your mind? What you would think, Jesus, when he says your name, when he said Zacchaeus' name, and then he says, I must, and the Greek word there is day, and it means it's, it's necessary. Zacchaeus, it's necessary I stay at your house today. And this was an, inc- this was an incredible supercharged statement because some, going to someone's house, staying in someone's home was, was an incredible, overarching, powerful statement of friendship. That if I'm going to be in this culture, to be in someone's home, to be served in someone's home, man, it was making a powerful statement of friendship. Verses 6 and 7, it says this, So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this. All the people that were in this crowd saw what Jesus had just did. They were like, oh my God, what is, what is going on here? And it says here, you look, it says, and they began to mutter, he has gone to be with the guest of a sinner. Mutter, that word is gagudzo in the Greek. <laughs> I just love that, gagudzo, gagudzo, mm, gagudzo. <laughs> it sounds so manly. <laughs> Maybe not, but <laughs> say, say this with me five times, real fast. Are you ready? On the count of three, say Gagudzo. Now, just when I say three, I want say Gagudzo five times, really fast. You ready? You got it. Gagudzo. Okay, one, two, three. Oh, that was the muttering, man. That's what Jesus was hearing. But he was hearing a lot of. He was hearing a lot of hate coming out of this muttering and this murmuring and this gagudzo. There was a lot of anti-Zacchaeus. They weren't saying, oh, wow, gee, I don't think their muttering was, wow, Jesus, whoa, he's so loving, he's so kind. Oh, my gosh, this is, wow, Zacchaeus needs this. He needs to be loved on. He needs to have a friend. No, no, I don't think they were saying, they were saying, Oh my gosh, what in the world did Jesus just do? I'm sure his disciples were just kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? People around them. I don't think we can be too hard on these people, though, because he had ripped them off. This Zacchaeus, they probably knew someone or had experienced, even personally, this man's anger, the power of his henchmen, the Roman government soldiers, people that... They had probably had their property confiscated. Their friends had had their property confiscated. Maybe their family members had property confiscated, put in debtor's prison, just because of this man's greed. And you can't really fault him, right, too much, to being angry and even even mad at Jesus for making this kind of extension of friendship. This guy was a bad dude. Very bad. But Jesus 
didn't chew him out. He didn't rebuke him for all that he had done and what he had done and what he had become in the eyes of the crowd. Jesus saw past. Jesus sees past what you've done. Even this week, you have done something that you feel. Jesus doesn't look at you based on what you did or didn't do. He looks at you through a different lens than the crowd. Even the crowd in your mind. And he sees incredible value in you. You know, I, I wonder, if you heard that there, there was someone going to church here, and they were saved, and they seemed to be on fire for the Lord, and that their life had been turned around, but they were someone like this. I mean, is there someone in your life that you can, you can picture this person in your mind? Maybe someone who hurt you deeply. They're not even a believer, but you know, picture in your mind, to, wouldn't you go like, mm -mm, no way, not that person. They, they can't be. This can't be real. This can't be sincere. I know what they've done. I know what they've done to me. No way. Uh-uh. But see, aren't you glad that we serve Jesus and not you? <laughs> right? Someone who betrayed you. Someone who abused you. Someone who divorced themselves from you, whether by marriage or by relationship. Someone who fired you. Someone who stabbed you in the back. They stole from you. I think especially hard when they haven't been called out for it yet. They haven't been called out for their bad behavior yet. Right? That we have a tendency to see him through a different lens, thankfully, than Jesus sees. And that's important for you to grasp for your own personal walk with God. Several hours later, you know, verses 7 and 8, Jesus has been there for a while. And then Zacchaeus makes this comment. He says, Zacchaeus stands up. And says to the Lord, look, Lord, look, Lord, I, I, I almost see childlike, there's a childlikeness to it all of a sudden. It's like, he, you know, when I, my kids were growing up, you know, they, they would, especially Jordan was a real drawer, my oldest boy. But, and, but he, man, he'd make a drawing, and the kids, they'd make a drawing, and they'd bring it to me, and they'd go, Daddy, Daddy, look, Daddy, look, look what I made, look what I made. And I'd look at it and go, I'm thinking to myself, what is it? <laughs> and I go, yes, darling. Yes, blessing. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's unique. <laughs> and it's Zacchaeus, it's just like, what's happened? Being impacted, it's Jesus, I know, as a dad, right? What Jesus must have felt toward Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is just like, 
what he's experienced, how Jesus said his name, how he was willing to come and, and, and show friendship in spite of who he knew he was. And there probably wasn't a lot of people that came and wanted to be in, Zac in Zacchaeus' house and, and be his friend. But Jesus was there. Contrary to the rumblings, contrary to the negativism, contrary to what everyone was saying against being there, Jesus was there. That's, that's powerful. Huh? It's monumental. And he says, what's, what's, what's amazing to me? All right, and you look at the book of Luke. Luke, you know, the different gospels. Here's a little sidetrack here for just a minute. But, you know, you have... You know, Matthew, who's trying to really help people see that he was the Christ, he was the Messiah. You've got John, who wanted to make sure that he was authenticity. There was, he was uh, helping people understand clearly that he was God. Luke was all about people understanding Jesus' humanity. He was divine, he was 100% God, but yet he was fully human. And what's really, I think when you look at Luke's overall perspective that's what this is what makes Zacchaeus's story so powerful because the essence the, the big picture the big theme is the Lord of glory having come down to our level and entering into our conditions and our failures and our weaknesses and our past and our rejections and all of that stuff he is there, wants to be there, will always be there. Man, that is so powerful. And just for him, just to say, look, Lord, for him to, to give authority and give sovereignty and give power to Jesus when he was a Roman, he worked for the Roman government. He wasn't to call anybody Lord except Caesar on threat of death. He was at a threat of losing everything by making this incredible claim, but with full faith, right? Whoa. Christians were thrown to the lions because they called Jesus Lord, right? He's calling him the Lord, the sovereign above all kings, all influences, Zacchaeus had made the switch. He made the switch. And Zacchaeus, it wasn't because Jesus berated him that he made the switch or scared him because he'd go to hell if he didn't, like, you know, have me in the house. No. The context is that it was his love, right? Zacchaeus was changed by love. Whew. I, come, I come against that condemnation in your heart that forces you to feel like you've got to somehow do something, be something, have something happen in order to somehow be Jesus' friend, be a companion, have him be thankful for you and grateful for you and, and be near you. That, that is a false image of Jesus. Right? I have to imagine the people in the room, some of the people in the room are probably going, what? Look, they're looking at Zacchaeus and going, what has happened to this man? 
power of love. Jesus says in verse 9, he says, Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man also is a son of Abraham. Oh my gosh, change happened like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? But what happened is it's because of Jesus' love. It's because of Jesus' love, Zacchaeus loves. His identity is no longer about affluence. It's about what Jesus did inside his heart. And what's really powerful is that he calls him the son of Abraham. He calls him the son of Abraham, man of faith. Oh, oh man. Whoa, you talk about looking past weaknesses. You talk about looking past failure. Man. And I'm just going to throw out three quick points, and then I'm going to bring this to a conclusion, an important conclusion here in just a minute. But number one, no matter how small I feel, Jesus sees me. No matter how small I feel, Jesus sees me. You may feel that no one sees you. You feel alone. You feel isolated. Jesus sees you. Number two, no matter what others say, Jesus values me. The crowd hated Zacchaeus. They hated Zacchaeus. But Jesus calls him the son of Abraham and he calls his name as if he's making a statement. You are righteous. You are pure. You are innocent before me and I am here to be your friend and together we can change. You may have heard things like, you'll never amount to anything. There's some people in here that have heard some very negative words in your life. Maybe there was the murmuring crowd around you. The murmuring crowd might have been a parent. Might have been a boss, a teacher. Maybe a spouse, a Maybe workmates, classmates, someone you love, someone you trusted, the crowd around you. What matters is not the names they call you, but what God says about you. What God says about you, how God sees you. We are made pure, blameless, righteous in Christ. Hello? We are made pure, innocent, righteous in Christ. He invites us to friendship. That is so powerful. He invites you and I to friendship just by faith in him, not by what we do, not by all the things that we think we have to somehow become, right? Mm. Number three, no matter what struggle, no matter what my struggle, Jesus transforms me. He transforms me. And he's continuing to transform me. He's working on me. Verse 8, the latter part of verse 8. This is powerful to me. It says, here and now, he says, look, Lord. Look, you can just, look, Lord. Here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pack back four times the amount. What are you guys doing? 
Oh. Are you trying to are you trying to get me out of here or what? Okay. He's taking over. My son is taking over. Mike. Are you are you okay? Are you do, do you, Are you with me? Okay, okay, follow me. Oh, distraction here. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, how can I ignore you? You're, you're, it's like Jesus. All of a sudden, you appear here. Right. Oh, my gosh. I have to have a talk after lunch. Right now. No. Okay. No. Here, back. Cheated anybody out of anything. I will pay back four times the amount. That's significant to what's happened, the transformation that's happened in Zacchaeus. There was an ancient Jewish formula that I just want to kind of touch on for restitution. And it was this, in, for fraud, numbers 5, 6, and 7. You had to restore what you had taken, but then add 20% to it. But if you had assaulted, if you had abused, if you had robbed, then you had to give four times the amount back. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus was saying to the Lord he would be willing to do. He was admitting that he had robbed and assaulted and abused people. But Lord, I'm willing, I'm willing to give it all up because, man, I, I see how much you love me. I, I see all that you have for me. I, in fact, I'm willing to give up my position, my affluence, I'm, I, what I've achieved, if anything, and probably it hasn't been important in the eyes of eternity. I'm willing to give it all up because I know that you love me. I know that you are my friend, that you will never leave me. It's not what other people say about me. It's not what other people say is valuable. It's about what you say is valuable. And I am a son of Abraham. I am a child of the living God. I am your friend. You are with me. You are for me. We are together in this. My gosh. Somebody say amen. Oh, God, help me out. This wasn't penance of a troubled heart, but the evidence of a transformed heart. Right? Some of you, man, you try to do penance because you're troubled, because of what you did. And that's the wrong perspective, man. It's wrong. God, we just need to destroy that stronghold, shame. And blame, right? Under the blood of Jesus. That... Mm. You know, there's a lot of parallels with Scrooge between Zacchaeus and Scrooge. Obviously, a transformed heart. But then he was changed, right? He's changed. And the literary version of this is really powerful to me. Charles Dickens says this. He says, he went to church, yay, and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars. Ever hear smell the roses, right? We're all in such a hurry. And looked down into the kitchens of the houses and up to the windows and found that everything, can you say everything? Everything could yield him pleasure. That, that's a heart transformed. 
when we get into this place where we can't, we lose our, our wonder. Um, just looking at the sunset and just rejoicing and being grateful and thankful that we are being guided by a supernatural father. And that everything can yield me pleasure if I let it. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. Boy, was that Zacchaeus? He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. When I came to faith out of my darkness and my the, the immorality of my life and I gave my life to Jesus and I walked out of that room the day that I did that and I I walked down a hall going oh my god I could never I never dreamed that anything could give me so much joy Some people laughed to see the alteration in him. But he let them laugh and little heeded them. It was always said of him he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge, may that be truly said of us and all of us. It wasn't the spirit of Christmas past that changed Zacchaeus. It was the redeemer of Christmas past. <laughs> he can take what the enemy meant for harm and use it for good. I'm going to tell you something. You've had some wounds, man, some big wounds. I, I can feel it. You've been hurt, some of you, in some strategic. But what's amazing about the redeemer is that the Bible clearly says that it was by his stripes that we are healed. And... God, I don't know, I don't know exactly how this all works, but by the stripes that, that I incurred and, and the things that happened, and I believe that out of my woundedness, out of my woundedness and, and hurt can flow healing to others that have been wounded and hurt if I'll open my heart up to his friendship. Verse 10, it says this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the bottom line. Some of you are wayward. You're, 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 you haven't lost your salvation. You're, you're a Christian. And, but, you know, we, we all at times wander, right? The thing of it is, is that no matter where we've wandered or how lost we've gotten, boom, he is there. He's there. He's so close. I want you to see something in a passage just before this. This is the prodigal son. You know, it said in verse 10, it says, this is why the son came. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, this had to have hit the disciples because just earlier, he gave these parables about the lost coin, the lost sheep, 
right? The prodigal son. Don't you know the disciples, when he said, this is why the Son of Man came, was to seek and save that which was lost, that it all of a sudden, like, dong, right? Like, oh my God, this is what he was talking about on the road. And it says, but while he, the father, or the, the prodigal son, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Dude, Jesus sees you. And when he sees you, he is filled with compassion. Oh, my God. When, no matter what you got yourself into, what, how you've lost and, and wandered, and when he sees you, when he looks at you, he only sees compassion, compassion, compassionate Father, compassionate Lord, compassionate Savior. Oh, my gosh. And he says this, he was filled with compassion. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And it says they began to celebrate. Every time you turn to your friend Jesus, they, they celebrate in heaven. Every time, maybe you've kind of gotten so busy and detached from God. And, and just in a moment, you just turn and you look. Celebration. Oh, he's looking at me. There's something that Jesus sees in your eyes that he longs to see. He wants to see. He wants to have relationship. And when you turn and have relationship, he's like, bam, yes. Valerie, yes. Let's eat together. Let's, let's have fellowship together. Hmm. If we base our life primarily on the appearance and the approval of people, achievement and affluence, nothing against those, all those things, but they are so unstable. There's a deeper stability, and it's in Jesus. Jesus endured the gaguzzo <laughs> of the crowd with Zacchaeus. He didn't listen to them and what they said. He just said, my focus is on Zacchaeus. He must have said, whoa, oh my God. Jesus doesn't care what those people are saying. And he wants to be my friend. He wants to come to my house. Oh my gosh, I, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. As Jesus was with Pilate. Jesus faced the jeers and the gaguzzo of the crowd. The murmuring, the hatred, the violence, the evil of the crowd, their hearts, their ill intent. Your Jesus looked past the gaguzzo and the murmuring and the complaining and he looked I just love this picture because Jesus is looking up because he's looking past the crowds. He's looking past what people have even identified you as. He's, he's looking past what people have said about you. He's looking past because he sees something in you that he was willing to give his life for because he believes in you so deeply. He endured the grumbling, the mockery, the violence of the crowd. 
because he loves you. Huh? He loves you. Whew, that's deep. That's deep. Stand with me. Jesus is a friend. As we worship and we lift our hearts, throw those things off. Say to Jesus, you don't even have to sing the words per se. Maybe personally, you just need to say, Jesus, those words, do that in me. You can just say it in your thoughts. You just, God, help me understand your friendship. Help me understand your love. Help me understand that you're my closest companion. Now, now we can worship. Huh? Huh? I, I, I love the, the, the dinner music in the background. Jesus, help us love you. Help us love you more than we've ever loved you before. But God, not because we feel guilt, but because we know you love us and in turn we give ourselves to you. Jesus, to you. We all go through challenges personal challenges, but may the grace of God open your eyes to see how much is the Father's love for you, His love deep, wide, the breadth of it. May you be able to understand the significance of what Jesus did, how much He loves you when he sees you his heart is full of compassion compassion so Lord Holy Spirit we ask you to yeah just rest on every person in this room as they even leave that they would just sense your tangible presence nearness even in difficult news even in positive news that that they would be able to see pleasure in everything. Not knowing how could I be so happy in the midst of it. Lord, we just give you praise. You are a rock. You are a redeemer. Father, restore, heal. In Jesus' precious name. And we go out with thanksgiving, Lord. Thanksgiving for what you've done, who you are, what you mean to us. We thank you. We celebrate. We celebrate. We celebrate. And I know the angels are celebrating with us. Jesus, we praise you, your name.